Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 208. I'm your host, Derek Warren, with me once again, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pastricelli, my semi-permanent co-host. Jay, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Derek. And I, listen, I don't know if you know this, but 52 weeks times four equals 208. Like, are you on like your four-year anniversary today? Um, Is that's that interesting. Just skip a week. Like you're pretty good about putting these out. I didn't, you know what? I didn't even look. So what what would that be? No, I think I've been doing it longer. Well, then I'm going to have to do the math. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it could be four years. It sounds like four years. Did I start this in 08? That's the math. That was the quick math I did for you today in case you didn't know how to do math. Yeah. All right. I haven't thought of it. I'll have to look at it. Obviously, this is 208. Uh, So, all right, Jay, there's a couple things we need to cover today. First, there, by the way, did you hear today there's this whole thing about a no landing in the economy? Is that like the new new thing? Have you heard this term? Wait, is that good? Is that bad? Like, I have heard of it because we've heard about the soft landing and the hard landing. Obviously, it's implied the hard landing is much worse. But like, what's what's the no landing? Like, we don't land at all. Like, we just keep flying to the moon. Is that is that what it insinuates? I mean, some people are saying, "Hey, wait a second. Is there even? Wouldn't a no landing be a soft landing? I mean, a soft landing is inflation comes down, and the Fed lowers rates, and we don't get a recession, or we get a recession. That's a hard landing. So I don't know. Could you have a? You and I would probably say when you look at you know a lot of the metrics that they'll eventually use to determine when or if a recession happened, right? Earnings are in a recession. We saw two negative quarters of GDP within the last year. Like I think you and I are in the camp that we've kind of already had it. I'm not saying it won't get worse, but you and I have said this, right? This is the first time we're talking about it. Like, hey, we're probably in a recession, but no one noticed. I think I think yeah, because the the National Bureau of Economic Research. They'll have lunch in six months, and then they might tell us we already had a recession. But all right, the no landing scenario. <laughs> kind of like who, who reaches for the bill first when nobody reaches for the bill? Yeah. And it's a recession. Yeah. I mean, they, they did tell us we had a recession in 2008, 2009. I think they told us in August of 2009, didn't they? I'd have to go back yeah. and look that up. But let me tell you, Jay, sure. what a no landing, no landing scenario, quote, is the economy continues its upward trajectory trajectory, if I can say that right, but inflation refuses to be tamed. So it's it's really the opposite of a, that's not stagflation. It's, I'm going to have to come up with a new, like stagflation would be economy. One, one divided by stagflation. Oh no, because interest, because inflation stays up. It's only part of it, right? So this is like, yeah, stagflation is interest rates stay, or inflation stays high, but the economy growth drops. Doesn't grow. Yeah. So a, a no landing would be growth happens and inflation stays high. I, I don't know. What, what does that mean, really? Uh, <laughs> it feels like a balloon inflating, but that's okay. Let's not go, go there. Oh, boy. <laughs> At all. Well, speaking of, uh, of balloons, I think the Fed has been putting out a lot of trial balloons, Jay. And I, I'm, I'm getting tired of everyone going on TV and telling us what the Fed's going to do, when they're going to do it. And, you know, I did an episode a couple couple weeks back. I think, I don't think you were on, 
that one. But I, I kind of made the case, like no one's really talking about that the Fed may not have to lower rates. They might just keep them where they are. And I, and I think that's, I mean, Jay, I'll, I'll give you, let me set this up and let's kind of discuss it. The idea that, okay, well, let's say the Fed, and I, I'd say the jury's out on whether the Fed has really done anything to lower inflation. But let's say that the Fed sees inflation come back to two, two and a half. If you go back to the 90s, which is really the last time we had a normal Fed policy, and I say normal Fed policy in, in air quotes, but you know, typically you would have a Fed funds rate that was, you know, two to four percent, two, three, four percent above inflation. So if we got that again and inflation comes down to two and a half, I mean, wouldn't rates just stay at four and a half or five? I mean, why couldn't they just stay there, Jay? Well, I I mean, sure they could. And the Fed has told you they plan on keeping rates higher for longer if they can. And they didn't say the if they can. I think everybody interprets the if they can, meaning if they don't have to ease to, you know, help the economy. But but what does that really mean? You know, when you when you when you look at, you know, the long term projection of the Fed funds rate, even by the Fed themselves, you know, out five years, what do they say? They say two and a half, three percent. Right. That's kind of their long term target. So I think I think you listen, Derek, I think you're right. If they don't have to lower them, they won't lower them just for some random number target that they're going to eventually hit in three or four years. Uh, and if the economy can withstand it, I actually think it 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 empowers them. It gives them the ability to, you know, people say what they got more uh, bullets in their gun. They got more hours in their quiver. Like it just gives them more room uh, in case they have to bail out the economy uh, for something else. So I don't think they have to come down. Like, you know, the bond market has priced in that they are going to come down with the except, you know, before this week, you still were looking at like a 10 year and a five year in the three and a half range. Right. So, you know, and, you know, the bond market just wasn't buying this whole longer, higher for longer thing. And the bond market isn't buying what you're proposing. Uh, but if things are okay, I don't see why they have to lower rates. I just don't. I mean, wouldn't they? Well, you made the point about more arrows in the quiver, whatever other analogy, eggs in the basket, put the eggs in the basket, six half dozen. Well, that's an inflation what? discussion right now. You want to talk about eggs? Well, yeah. Talk about inflation. I will say, all right, let me go to eggs real quick. I will tell you that I saw eggs have been missing from the grocery shelves. And I went the other day and it was a wash in eggs. Like you could have all the eggs you want and then some. So it, it kind of goes, sometimes things teeter one way or another. But <laughs> They overordered eggs. Yeah, I mean, they definitely, they overordered. So if you want eggs, you got eggs. By the way, it was interesting. The higher end eggs, you know, the ones that are a lot of times taste better and they're from, you know, the smaller farms and stuff. The prices on those never changed. It was like the Kroger eggs or the Fry's eggs or, you know, those of you on the East Coast, uh, you know, Pathmark and ShopRite eggs. We don't have those out here. On, on, on Derek, you're Western from North Florida. Jersey. I'll call them the throwing eggs, right? That's The more throwing eggs? Yeah. So <laughs> anyone in North Jersey knows what we're talking about. Uh, so, but it's, if you look at the Fed, like they don't, the problem when rates were zero, like, like think about when... 2020 happened. 
rates were already low. I mean, they weren't zero, but all you could do is go to zero and then they had to do stuff on the balance sheet. They have to do things like, you know, buying, buying bonds. They were putting massive amounts of money, you know, quantitative easing. So to me, if they could stick at like a four to 5% and the, and the economy is doing okay, then yeah, to your point, Jay, that gives them a lot of flexibility because then they can still, you know, lower a quarter, lower a quarter, lower a half to all the stuff. Like they've wanted to get here and they just haven't been able to. I mean, remember what happened with the market, the the temper tantrum? What was that, 2014? The taper tantrum. The taper yeah, tantrum, yeah. yeah. Well, the market's had a taper Sorry. tantrum. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I mean, and the other thing too, I'll say, Jay, like it's not normal to have a negative real return, meaning what is the return on your your bond minus inflation. You should have a positive real return because you should have the ability to keep up with inflation and then some. Jay, it's not normal to have negative real rates, right? No, no, that's absolutely not normal. Although it has felt that way the last few years where uh, inflation has been tracking at or higher than the Fed funds rate. I will say too that a lot of people say, okay, well, and you may have a different opinion on this, I always go back to the 1990s, 1994, 1995. That to me is the last time we had a rate hiking cycle. Really interesting. We had a 0% real rate if you take the, the Fed funds rate minus the inflation rate. And the Fed started raising rates. And they actually surprised people back then. And then you look at, you say, okay, what, what was the spread going from, you know, the start of the 94 cycle all the way up to, you know, right around 2000-ish, 2001. And it was 2 to 4% above inflation. So to your point, if, if the Fed gets back to 25 or 2% inflation, you would expect rates to be anywhere between 4 and 6%. But a lot of people say that's not good. I take the opposite side of that. After nine, when they were done in 95, the market took off like a rocket. That was a great extension of the bull market that started in the early 80s. So just because rates are high doesn't mean that everything has to crash. The markets can do good, and maybe maybe it's more quality will do good than some of the, the junk that has no earnings. But I don't know, Jay. I mean, to me, like if you can get in a portfolio good rates of return on treasuries, and especially at the shorter end of the curve with little to no interest rate risk. I mean, what's not good about that, right? So look, that that seems pretty good. It, it seems to kind of uh, support a healthy economy. But there is a reason why, you know, higher rates are not great for the stock market. I, I appreciate that you called out, you know, the mid to late 90s uh, as a period of, of, of growth in the market. Uh, but look, like right now, you and I see it all the time. I think we're constantly getting this question. Should I just take my assets and put them into, you know, a five-year bond? And then let's just revisit once we're done with what the Fed is doing. So when I say, I didn't mean a five-year bond, a 5% bond, because you could get six-month treasuries right now to pay you a 5% annualized yield. So two and a half percent over that six-month period. And so, you know, when you think about the investment choices that people are making, it's stocks and their volatility, or remove volatility from your life for the next six months to a year or two years, and get paid a four and a half to five percent uh, yield, and it's just a safer way to go. And so, 
you know, I, listen, I get your perspective, but there's a reason why the phrase don't fight the Fed is out there. The Fed raising rates, a hawkish Fed is typically not great for stocks. And I think that uh, has been evident since the, uh, the strong jobs number that we saw, the January jobs numbers that came out in the beginning of February, the market reacted you know, negatively to that because it felt like, well, the Fed's going to raise rates. You look at retail sales last week, strong. The Fed's going to raise rates, right? So I think, Derek, like, I, generally speaking, you, you'd be calling out an abnormality, and it wouldn't be the first time that you were right about doing that. I'll give you props for that. But generally speaking, higher rates are less good for stocks. Sure, because as, as the discount, you have to discount future earnings down to the present. And I think that's, yeah, absolutely. Because though, there are value investors and there are institutions who are doing discounted cash flow analysis. And the higher rates are, the less those future earnings mean. And if you have companies without future earnings, those, those tend to get pretty beat up. They, they, you know, a lot of the, the tech companies that don't pay dividends and you know, they're, they're really high growth, they're almost long duration assets. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely, you, know, you mentioned the Fed. I think it was Bullard and was it Mester? In the last couple of days, uh, had said, "Yeah, we're, we're kind of good with rates going higher and staying higher for longer." By the way, it's, it is curious that neither of them are voting members. They do participate <laughs> in discussions, but they do not. They they are not yeah. voting members right now. Um, yeah, yeah that's I'm, true. Uh, so I I don't think. Yeah, Even Cash Car is not a voting member yet. I don't think. Like, I mean, you know, they go through this rotation, right? And he's always yeah. been out there talking quite a bit. I mean, it is a little bit of the, you know, the Fed. Uh, when I, when I see that, I just, you know, it's not Powell. Um, it's not it's not a uh, Brainerd, right? Did I get her name right? Sorry, the vice chair. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not the two of them talking about this. It's people that don't have a vote. So it's almost like, listen, the Fed wants rates higher. That's the whole point. And when the market wasn't believing it, uh, like in August of last year, what did Powell do? Came out and said, hey, everybody listen to me. I'm serious about this and proceeded to raise, you know, 200 basis points, right? So I just, I think that there's a little bit of a tool that they're using, right? When the Fed says, here's our tools, they talk about, well, we have, uh, actually we can raise rates. And the other tool in our tool belt is talking about raising rates, which is a little funny to me. If you can hear me, I'm, I'm smiling as I'm saying it. Yeah. But You know, you got to take that with a grain of salt because they absolutely want you to continue to believe that rates will be higher because they are trying to slow down this hot economy, which continues to be pretty strong. Right. I mean, I know folks are losing jobs. And I think if you're in like certain sectors like real estate, yeah, you're you're in construction, you're going to go through a rough time. We know that. But that's the one the Fed could definitely affect. But uh, the rest of it, Derek, I think it's a lot of posturing and it's a lot of. uh, a lot of talking to keep rates where they are, and I'm not surprised the market reacted the way it did this week, especially, you know, from Thursday and Friday on uh, what would have been the 16th and the 17th. The market was not happy with what was coming out of the, the Fed governors. So, By the way, Buller does not have a vote until 2025. I think he must have voted last year. Um, and Mester doesn't have a vote until 24, although I think she's – she has to retire. There's some minutia about when you get nominated or confirmed and what your age is. There's sort of age limits. Uh, unlike in Congress, when you can be 183 and continue to serve. But or a I'll, president. I'll see, 
Um, yes, that's true. That's true. Oldest sitting president. Yeah, you have to. What is it? Thirty-five. You have to be thirty-five. Thirty-five. Yeah. Uh, you need to be thirty-five. But but I right. can't imagine us electing a thirty-five-year-old at this point. But that's maybe that's a different podcast. That's that's not our beat. JR beat though does include uh, interest rate curves. We call them the Treasury yield curves. Sure. I'll just real real quick. I mean, it, it's sort of we're inverted right now, which of course means anything. Um, you know, it, we actually are we're uninverted before we invert. Has that like the one, the three month is lower than the six month. So congratulations, we uninverted there. But then we invert again where the one year is more than the two year, more than the three year, and so on and so forth. So I don't know. I mean, a normal yield curve would say your shorter term rates are lower and you should get paid some sort of time premium for going out further. I guess that's the other scenario where, you know, Jay, let's say we stay around four and a half or five or four. I mean, in a normal yield curve, wouldn't that mean the five-year, the 10-year, the 30-year should be a couple hundred basis points higher, right? Yeah. I mean, it would not be ridiculous to see a 6% on the 10-year if, uh, you know, Fed funds stayed at four, four and a half. That would be fairly normal. I'm looking, by the way, at 1995. Remember I said 94, they started raising rates. 95, they continued. It's almost from the sequencing and the timing, it's almost a mirror image of when they started raising rates in 22. By September, from memory of 95, I believe they lowered 25 basis points. But I'm just looking by November of 95, I'm looking at the yield curve. And, you know, short three-month rates were like five and a half. One-year rates were less than that. But then you go out, you know, three and five years, seven years, 10 years was 6%. So, I don't know if that's going to happen again, but what is what do we always say? It doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. I think I use that a lot on here, but um, yeah. Well, it, it could be that could be the way it goes. Uh, I would say the market right now is not taking that position, right? I think uh, with the ten years no. sitting at just right short of four now. I think the way mm-hmm. we closed, right, just short of four percent yet. Uh, the one year the, the, is is at five percent. The six month is at five percent. So the mark. I mean, I, we hear the debate. Who's right? Bond the bond market, or you know, or the Fed, and you know where the money's going every day. It's showing something different. I do think there's something a little different there going on, Derek. That we don't always talk about, but you know, if you trade bonds, you would know this. But you know, if you are a believer that rates will eventually come down, you want to have duration. You want longer. You want the longer end of the curve because you get the benefit, right, Derek? This is uh, I'm going to use really, really simple math, and then you'll correct me. But the uh, generally speaking, if markets, if rates were to drop one percent today, right, on a ten-year bond would appreciate something like nine and a half percent overnight. Is that correct? It's close enough for government work. Uh, <laughs> I don't a, have the spreadsheet in front of me. I don't have it in front of me either. But I'll, I'm going to guess seven point eight percent. I'm going to pull it up as we're talking. But but continue right. on, Jay. So what my point is that I think there's some buying at the longer end of the curve, uh, and t- because you just you want to be long duration 
for when the Fed does eventually cut rates, right? When they eventually go back down to the, if they're eventually going to go back down to the two and a half percent. And that's a real, you know, interesting uh, proposal for you, like not for you, but as like an investor to think about, well, the Fed's really going to lower rates at some point. You want to be long duration. Um, but in the meantime, uh, the risk of them raising rates is pushing, you know, the shorter end of the curve higher to that uh, 5% range. That's six month at 5% is really interesting. And we probably go higher than that at this point, right? The the terminal rate, I know we don't have any data specifically in the package you put together for today. By the way, Derek always puts together a bunch of charts and then just lets me look at them for about 30 seconds and then starts the podcast, which I appreciate because he gets my... Uh, you really get my raw reaction to them, Derek, when you do that. Yes. I, I, so thank you, right? You're getting unrehearsed commentary. Um, but the the point that I was trying to make about that was, you know, the market is saying, yeah, terminal rate could be here at the 5% range. But if you go out longer in the curve because you think we're eventually going to lower rates, you have to be buying bonds and you have to be buying the 10-year. And that's what's pushing the price of the 10-year up. And that hence pushes the yield of the 10-year down, which is where it is today. Yeah, by the way, I did run the calculation. It wasn't 7.9% on the duration. It was 8.3. So, yeah, if you bought a bond, a 10-year bond at 3.9 and it went to 2.9 today, meaning you still have 10 years left in maturity, you'd expect to to make, you know, probably a little bit over 8% on that transaction. So, you know, if you were calling for lower rates, like you said, you want a duration there. And whether the 10-year moves, if we have lower rates, I mean, that's that's the challenge with doing any of this, is different parts of the yield curve move differently. You might say, well, why not got to the 30s? Well, 30s may not move, but um, but yeah, kind of close the loop on that, Jay. That's, But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, I could, and, it's by just the way, a lot of weirdness, a lot of funkiness in the yield curve right now. Yeah, well, speaking of funkiness, uh, and I do want to spend some time on some people calling for a Volpocalypse 2.0. Before we go to that, um, there's some funkiness in that. Uh, I forget who did this. Let's see who's this is a iBox Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research. Somebody passed this to me. The share of US investment grade bonds, and that's the IG index, yielding less than the three month Treasury bill, spiked to 32% in early February. I think it's come back down to 12%. And what does this mean? This means that let's say your your three-month bond is is paying 4.5% or, or yielding, yield to maturity 4.5%, not the coupon, but the yield to maturity. What that's saying is that at one point, 32% of the bonds in the investment-grade U.S. Uh, index were yielding to maturity less than three-month treasury bills. That's a little odd, Jay, and there's some interesting stuff other periods where this has happened, right? Well, yes. And and the reason why is typically you associate your return with risk, right? And if you're taking more risk, you should get paid a little more for it, right? So the argument could be that, uh, you know, a, a corporation has got less risk of default than any corporation, by the way. We're talking investment grade here. So good, strong balance sheet corporations. Uh, the risk of default is less than that of the government. And that's fairly, that's kind of an accepted, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, I'd say that's fairly well accepted. So, you know, when you look at, uh, I just, be, 
I didn't plan on this, but I just pulled up, you know, some uh, AAA bonds. I'm looking at a Microsoft bond that matures in, let's say, uh, May of this year, right? The yield to maturity on this Microsoft bond, if you bought that today, it's a May 2023 bond. The yield to maturity is 2.9%. 2.9%. So you could buy uh, a three-month government bond that's paying you what? Off the top of my head, I don't know what the three-month government bond is paying. Probably four, four eight, four seven, something like that. Four yeah. seven, or you could go buy a Microsoft bond paying you two point nine percent yield to maturity. So it's just, just that is definitely wonky, right? No, you wouldn't if you had to if you're buying a bond and you want to figure out okay who's got the greatest chance of paying me back is it Microsoft or the U.S. government? Well, listen, I know there's this. Def- debate going on in Congress right now. But generally speaking, it's the answer is not Microsoft. It's the U.S. government. That's a great point. I mean, because because really, normally, you'd say, okay, well, treasuries are, you have no risk of default. In other words, they could, you know, the U.S. government can print the money. It would be a mistake or really poor decisions if we ever defaulted on our, our debt. But yeah, essentially what you're saying, like, given the choice, you'd say, well, I want the thing that's uh, that has a greater chance to to pay me back, and normally that's expressed with a lower yield to maturity because you get paid to take risk. That that's kind of an issue. I hadn't thought of that, Jay. Okay, Microsoft has a better chance of paying you back than the government. That's actually that's, I shouldn't what, say that. that's what that bond is saying right now. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> it is, or there's too much. You know, there's too much demand for them. You know, we get into some of the mechanics, but no, that that's really interesting. Uh, I'll just say this too. You look at other time. This is a, a pretty big anomaly right now, just in the, the magnitude of of the percentages. You mean but the 32, times, right? The 32 is a really yeah, high the thirty percent. the 32% yeah. of the bonds, you know. So that that's pretty big. But then you look and you say, well, when else has this happened? Well, it looks like 19 into 20, 07. A little bit, you know, you see some, some ticks up 2000s, 2001s. Look, you and I don't pick direction on markets, especially not in the short term. That's why we buy and we hedge. But as our core thing that we do, we manage risk. I just think it's interesting that you had some dust ups in the markets when this happens. What does this mean? I don't know. Do you know, Jay? You know, well, you know, the timings that you just called out, those, the times uh, led, the, you know, your dust up in the market, right? So I don't think that was clear that when you got this phenomenon where investment grade was less than a three-month treasury, uh, it preceded uh, an arguably difficult time in the financial markets, right? So, the, I mean, it could be a very scary thing. I mean, I would, I'll say that none of those periods had, uh, you know, rising rates as rapidly as we're seeing today. And it just could be that the government bonds are taking a long time to catch. Sorry, the corporate bonds are taking a long time to catch up. Right. And maybe they issued all the debt that they feel like um, last year and because rates were low and now they're not issuing new debt. Like, I don't I think I'd probably want to see, you know, if I was to really worry about this, I would like to see, you know, the amount of debt issued this year with rates where they are compared to previous years. No, it's fair enough. I mean, obviously, yield to maturity takes into account the price and the coupon. So it's all sort of the same across the board. I know that's what you're referring to. But your point about 
the issuance of bonds, I know in the corporate space, we really aren't seeing as much paper being issued, nor are we seeing a lot of, uh, you know, things coming to maturity. I don't think we start to see that till later. But we did notice on a, on a we did mention, Jay, in a previous podcast that the spreads, uh, you know, investment grade bond spreads, meaning the spread, the difference in the yield between them and let's say even a 10-year treasury has been compressed. So just something to watch. It's it's odd. And when I see odd things, uh, I think it's good to point out. What is not odd is that um, I'll spend two seconds on this, Jay. You know, I love the container shipping rate beat, which has been my thing for uh, for a while. Congratulations to Rotterdam, which is in the Netherlands, to New York. They finally joined the uh, uh, the party, meaning they now, those rates are going down. I think container shipping rates are basically across the board about 80% less than they were a year ago. So congratulations, you did it. Yay. For Rotterdam Matthew. has made the turn. Yes. They made the turn, yes. So I mean, we uh, are pre, you know, <laughs> pandemic levels here, right? At the, like we're, we're kind yeah. of in that range at this point, generally speaking. Yeah. Which is, which is good news or it's, Nobody's shipping anything because nobody wants anything and there's too much inventory. But what the heck do I know? They're just down. It's better. You don't, I mean, you're not spending $20,000 to, for a container anymore. You can spend, I don't know, 1800 or 1300. Jay, you think uh, that's going to help? Is it, you think that's going to help inflation come down? Well, since I believe that this was a supply side inflation due to excess government stimulus, nothing to do with interest rates. Uh, yeah, we had too few, too many dollars chasing too few goods at the middle of a pandemic. We had supply chain stuff and too many things ordered on Amazon, put on ships from across elsewhere. And yeah, Jay, I think that's good. I mean, I look, if I you're a company. You a softball. I fear I yeah. a nice softball, juicy down the middle. I let you hit that one out of the park. Yeah. I mean, look, if it just... Look, if you and I start a company today, and we're not doing this, but if we start a company today, we're going to ship widgets from Shanghai, China to to LA, and we got to charge whatever it is for the widgets. Well, if we're paying $20,000 versus paying $1,300 for that same container, you would think we don't have to charge as much. Right. Right. Prices will be a little less, for sure. Prices will be a little less. And, And then you have other news like, okay, so there was a chart that said the most bankruptcies for companies with greater than $50 million in liabilities since 2010. And somebody else put out a chart where you said, okay, as bankruptcies rise, GDP growth falls. Uh, I don't have enough information on this, Jay, but um, you know, we're not seeing it in the high yield markets though, which is interesting. So this no, we're looks not, like we're a not different segment. In high yield, but let me let me just clarify the the data point you're referencing. That uh, for companies that have fifty million dollars in liabilities this year so far, maybe through January, you've seen the largest number of bankruptcies since 2010. Right. So you look at 11 through 22 this year so far for this first month of the year, we've had more bankruptcies bankruptcies the month of January than we have since 2010, right? So I just, I thought I'd clear that up because I don't think we hear about a lot of bankruptcies right now, right? No, this is a lot of defaults in the high yield market. Yeah. Are they saying there's been 20 bankruptcies? Like this could be a chart crime. This could be, we don't know. 
what's the percent of companies of greater than 50 million that are, you know, this could be right, right. 0. That, that number 1%. could have increased dramatically. Right. It could be 1%. It is just, it could be a chart crime. That's true. <laughs> All right. Chart Another crimes. thing I wanted to, to cover, this was uh, who's this? creative planning and put this out. And basically they said, S&P 500 bear market lows and forward returns since 1949. So this is once you know there's a bottom, and you and I always joke, we'll tell you when the bottom is once the bottom's in. Like maybe the bottom was last year and when we were on 3,600. But Jay, this is interesting. Like this is once the bottom's in, returns are pretty darn good, right? Take us yeah, through this. Yeah, I mean, when you look, so this is, you look at all the bear markets since 49, the average rebound off the bottom one year later in the S&P, the average is 47.5%. So if you were, and, and the, by the way, in this list, it's they're all significantly higher, right? The worst one is 27%. There's a handful of 33%. So if the bottom was actually in, if we saw the bottom when it kind of, you know, let's just round to 3,600 uh, in the middle of October, if that was the bottom, uh, 3,600, and we appreciated by just the lowest amount on this list, which is 27%. By October of 2024, the S&P should be at, you know, 4,570. That's, I mean, if we had bottom, that's what this would tell you, right? If we don't come up to that high, it would be the worst recovery in a bear market in the last 70 years. The average, if we got the average, it means we'd make a new all-time high, if I'm doing the math correctly in my head. You, you, you are correct, right? 3,600 times 1.475 would bring you to 5,300. That would be something, right? 5,300 from today's uh, level where, where would we close today? Uh, Friday was 4,080. Um, that's a 29%, 30% move from here over the next eight months. All right, let's that do it. Let's, that would be let's something. Let's go. I'm ready. <laughs> I mean, come on. Why not? Why not? Which, which analyst is out there calling for, uh, you know, 5,000 plus? None. Which might be the exact reason why it happens. Even Tom Lee. Was Tom Lee like 4,700? 40, he's, he's probably 48. one of the highest. I saw him 48 last week. 4,800. Yeah, the bowl of all bowls is at 4,800. But Jay, I just told you that 20 companies declare bankruptcy in January. We can't go up there. Who knows? This is why we don't pick markets. Right. Uh, <laughs> all right. I want to. I don't know. Like, who knows? All right. Keep going. All right. So last thing I want to cover is this is uh, our beat, volatility. And I think this is, well, let, let me kind of introduce it, but I want you to give your thoughts first on here. And it's the idea that a percent of total S&P volume on options that are zero days to expire. So like if you, if it's a dear zero DTE, it's options that are expiring today. And they're saying, what is this? 44% of the volume on, on the SPX is had less than 24 hours to maturity. Someone went on, I think it was somebody from JP Morgan, maybe somebody else on Bloomberg. And the headline was Volpocalypse 2.0. And I think they had a question mark. So I guess the theory that some people are floating is these are going to cause some major blow up in the market. I mean, all right, let me let you go first. And I think we need to give some perspective from a historical standpoint. 
Yeah. So, right. The theory is that because of all this volume, the options market is preparing for something and it's going to be where the tail wags the dog, where the options market can cause some part uh, of the financial markets to have an implosion or a, a crash. Uh, the Volpocalypse that you're referencing, the first one was uh, early 2018, I believe it was February of 2018, where the VIX doubled in a single day, mostly because of after hours futures trading, but still, and it caused all sorts of trouble in any volatility related product. Now, it didn't affect the stock market all that much. We saw maybe, I don't even think we saw a 10% correction from it. Um, but that's the theory behind this, that all this one day, zero days to expiration volume, all the same day volume is indicative of something uh, looming and pending. And I'm going to call shenanigans on that, right? As people that trade options, we trade zero DTEs all the time. It's fine. You know what? I mean, is if in a single stock, sometimes you could cause it could cause some movement in an individual stock. But this is the S&P 500. And so when you look at the S&P 500 volume, as 44% of the options being traded in the S&P 500 are zero days to expiration, I'm going to say a little bit, who cares? Like, who cares? Like, I feel like this is not very consequential and doesn't really impact the movement of the S&P 500, which is so much bigger. And Derek, I, I'm going to I'm going to give you the most obvious the chance to say the most obvious reason why this is happening because I'm going to give it to you before I get too excited with this malarkey. Well, okay. <laughs> this is I all right. Here's some perspective. In 2011, which is this chart, which our audience can't see, but the, this chart shows 2011, the the zero day to expiration options, the percentage of volume on the SPX was, was about 5%. Okay. I went back and I used the SPY as a proxy. I could have used the SPX. I don't know why I didn't do that. But I looked in 2011 uh, and I looked at the option chain. We have the ability through you know the software to pull up old option chains. There was a February 25th options, which seven days to expire. And then it went to March 18th, which is 28 days to expire. And then there were options that were expiring on February 18th, which had zero days. Okay. So notice what's not there. You could trade, you know, a week out. And then the next one was like 28 days. Today, there are zero days, and then this is a, a three-day holiday. We're recording this on a Friday, three-day holiday. So then there's four-day options, 5, 6, 7, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 21, 28, 35, 42. Apple, same thing. Apple, I go back. There was seven days to expire. February 25th was the expiration of February 11th of, of 2011. And even Apple has you know, 0, 7, 14, 21. Okay, let me just set this up. If you have a lot of expirations and you have things that are expiring every day, aren't you going to have a lot of volume on stuff that expires every day, Jay, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's where you get the opportunity to take out all the wonkiness that can occur in longer term options. And if you're day trading options, you don't want a week long option. You want that day's option. 
And so if you have a theory on the market's going to go up, down, sideways, and whether you're selling or buying options, yes, you want to trade the one-dayer. If you're going to day trade, you trade the one-dayer, right? So, I mean, it's it, the, the, the fact that the volume has gone up is no surprise because now every day of the week you could trade a zero DTE option, whereas before you had to wait a month to get the, the zero DT option, or maybe even a week, right? When weeklies came out, it that volume went up. But now every day you could trade the S&P or the SPY uh, uh, options. And so, of course, all of the volume is going to be there. I mean, let's, let's just think about it too. Let's say even a retail trader, they have options, they expire today or they expire Tuesday or Wednesday. Okay, if they're in the money, meaning they own a call and it's in the money, you either sell it for a profit, uh, you exercise, which most people don't do, or you roll it. And same thing, if you're short a covered call and it's getting threatened, you roll it. I mean, you like you you close out options on the expiration day. So there's just going to be a lot of things that are being rolled, covered, adjusted, those types of things. Now, Jay, the, the argument is, that if you have all this volume on all these really, you know, let's just call them zero DTE options, that if you had an extreme market move, the market makers, you know, it's that gamma thing again. It's uh, you've got gamma risk and they have to adjust their books. Although I'm not convinced. I mean, it's kind of a cheap gamma hedge against the books, the other stuff that they have on the books as well. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Jay. But I, I actually think it, it it makes it easier for the for the for the market makers to get them. There's no neutral. time. There's no There's time. No time to, yeah, like you don't need to buy a whole bunch of them with deltas of 30s. You just buy the hundreds. It's fine. It's you know, like when I look at when we had uh, you know the Volmageddon, if I'm saying that right, I can never get that word right. In 20 Q1 of 2018, the volume of zero DTEs was just the same the previous five quarters and then the following four quarters. Like it didn't matter. So the volume of the zero day to expiration options, I don't think has very much at all to do with any sort of uh, collapse or expansion of premium in the options market. By the way, for the listening look, audience. CNBC can't stop running it. Like it's actually, no. it's, it's, I'm annoyed. I was smiling before and now I'm annoyed. And you made me talk about this again. I'm more annoyed again. This is ridiculous. Please do not pay attention to this. Please do not go out and buy VIX futures because of this. Although I'm not giving yeah. you a recommendation. I should back that. Yeah. And by We're the way, not you're, doing you're, that. Yeah. We don't give recommendations. Just look at our oh. December episode where we gave our predictions. Uh, that will tell you all I need. I will also say, if you're if you're sitting at home and be like, oh, maybe I'll buy some some zero DTE options. I mean, I I'll give you a good story. Uh, there was a guy I worked with. This is back in the '90s, and what he used to do on expiration Friday, he would buy options near the close, and it was basically lottery tickets. And he said, you know, if the market's ever made a big move, he buys these really cheap options. And I think he lost money every week. Eventually, he made a little money, but I mean, you you have gamma sensitivity there, and I think, yeah. Anyway, just don't. I would be careful trading very short term options because you've got to be right. You've got to be right right away, and you also have this thing called gamma, especially on the short side that that can 
there's nowhere to roll on those. So would you agree, Jay? Yeah. No, listen, it's, it's their short term. They're, they're, they're really, they're bets, right? I mean, like that's, that's not what you and I do in the market, right? No. We do no. sometimes we'll take a high probability trade that has no time till expiration because it's got a high probability, but those can backfire on you just as well. Actually, they backfire more often than they should, right? Selling premium with zero or one day to go. Actually, the market doesn't do a good job paying you for those. So, you know, all that being, and we learned that in 2022. So all that being said, Derek, I think it's, 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 I'm, listen, I'm glad to bring it up. People are going to see stuff on options uh, on CNBC. No one's talking about the options complex. The, it's the risk of zero days till expiration options is not a problem to the, the structure of the market. All right, Jay, now that I got you all wound up, I'm going to save the is the VIX broken discussion for another podcast because. Uh, oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Let's get to uh, Jay. Do you have any recommendations for the, the audience this week? I, I do a little bit. Um, I started watching a show on Peacock called Poker Face. And really because I like the lead actress in it. It's um, uh, I think it's her name is Natasha Leone. She was the one from like the American Pies, but she did a great, she was like the friend who was like helping, uh, you know, Finch out, get a good reputation. Right. So, uh, but she was in a great show called Russian Doll that I thought was also really good. That one's on Netflix. If you could see that one. So Poker Face, I'm watching it. She's, she's, it's, it's pretty good. First episode was very good. Second, third, men's amends. But uh, a a show I really liked was, Another one she was in called uh, called Russian Doll. All right, Poker Face, and that's Pete. Now I got to go get Peacock. I think I have Peacock for yeah. free because it's through Cox Cable. It is Cable. free. Yeah, yeah. Peacock's free. So you watch a commercial on a streaming service if you don't feel like paying. It's not a big deal. Can I just tell you? You know, streaming was supposed to democratize cable, make it cheaper, make it easier. You know what? I don't. I don't know how many apps you have. I have like all these apps now. It's getting, it's getting a little crazy. I have every one. If you name it, I have it. I got all of them. I spend I so much more on my uh, enter- <laughs> television entertainment now. It's ridiculous. I got Disney Plus. Look, The Mandalorian's coming soon. You got to have Disney Plus. I'm a Star Trek guy. Picard 3 just started. I got to watch that. Yeah, you know, I got to watch them all. You're an Apple guy. You watch the Apple stuff. Yeah, you no, I know. It's, uh, I, yeah, it's... Peacock. All right. I got, I got to look at Peacock. I'm going to give a uh, full swing. So full swing is we've, we've talked about the drive to survive the F1 show on Netflix. Well, they've come yes. out with a, with a golf one. It's called full swing. It came out, I think Wednesday, all the episodes are out and yeah, I mean, it, it, it basically follows the PGA golfers the same way they follow the race car drivers and so far, so good. I think I think it's pretty good. It's worth the watch, Jay. I don't know if you've seen Full it. Full swing. You got it. I love that stuff. I'll totally watch it. I loved Drive to Survive. Drive to Survive, I think, comes back next week, too, on the 24th. That's when that one comes out. So All right. that, that will be a good one as well. Um, yeah, I mean, and Have by you the been way, to a Formula One race, Derek? Have you ever been to a Formula One? No. Did you go when it was in Miami? Have you been no. there? No. No, it was like 2000 bucks a ticket to go to Miami. But... I have been to one in the past when the Meadowlands had one in Jersey. There's one for you. Also oh, I didn't Jersey. go to that one. No, I remember when that was. I did go to that one years and years ago. It's it's great. It's incredible. 
So I could see why it's such a popular sport across the world. Weren't they supposed to have it in downtown Manhattan too? Did they ever do that once or maybe they never I did? Know, but I think next year, I think they're doing one in, they're doing one in Austin next year. I think. Oh boy, I should probably know that if I'm going to talk about it. So they're, it, they're, they're actually, the new one in, in the U.S. is is Las Vegas. So they have the Austin oh, one. Oh, wait, that's it. It was Vegas. They did an Austin one. It's Vegas, right? right. You're right. Thank you. Yeah, Vegas. so Austin has a, has a track, an actual F1 track, and then they do street races in Miami. They're going to do a street race. I think it's going to write down the, the Las Vegas Strip in, in Nevada. But uh, yeah, I was hoping Phoenix would get one, but no. It's, I don't know though. I mean, they, they keep enlarging that's enlarging expanding the schedule i don't know how many races there are next year but look i i like it's f1 a brutal, it's a brutal life man like those guys yeah. you saw the show they're on the road like how many weeks and they're in a different part of the world every week it's crazy i will say though uh you know the golfers like they, the the first episode they showed justin thomas and jordan spieth and they're like yeah let's let's go jump on the private jet fly an hour and go play a course and then go back home. I mean, that's, that's a, I get it that, you know, they're every week they're somewhere else, but it's not a, they're not exactly, you know, going through security for three hours at JFK with, you know, <laughs> their backs. you know what I mean? Right. It's, right. A, it's a little bit easier. All right. So Jay, we'll leave it there. Good recommendations. By the time people listen to this, uh, it should be Sunday of the holiday weekend. We hope that your holiday weekend is going well. And uh, all right, next time I'll bring up more volatility topics that will uh, make you even matter, Jay. We'll look forward Derek, to that. Derek, can I throw in a shameless plug, Derek? Besides Absolutely. the wonderful book, The Broken Pie Chart, uh, yes. you can uh, see Zega ringing the New York Stock Exchange opening bell on Friday the 24th. So That's right. Want to watch us ring the bell? Uh, you could do it, Derek. I wish you could be there. I know that uh, you can't, but. Uh, a few of the folks at Zega will be ringing the bell. So thought I'd let the, let the audience hear. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of a cool area, Jay, the, uh, the viewing platform, right. That's, uh, that's up. Um, I think we can't necessarily talk about the details, but yeah, just watch it at, at the Super secret bell. right now. Now there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's an ETF we're involved in that, uh, that we're, you know, that, uh, we're just, uh, it's nice to get the word out. It's good to bring say no awareness. more, Jay. Don't say any more. We got to add language oh. to it if you say anything else, Jay. <laughs> okay. There it is. All right, folks. We'll see you all soon. Thanks again, Jay. Take care.